the Darkness Dwells podcast, episode 70. This is also the Halloween special, part two, and it's the uh, the final Halloween special, but because um, this sort of thing continues up until Christmas, technically because of uh, the whole fireside ratings, ghost stories that, that people would often tell, uh, I believe in England, uh, about a hundred years ago, it was a tradition. I don't know if they still do it, but it, it's a pretty cool one. So I'm going to continue doing the uh, the short stories read by special guests and maybe even uh, special episodes up until Christmas. I'll probably do it in December, so stay tuned for that. Anyways, uh, on this uh, episode, Halloween special part two, we have uh, some really awesome stuff. Um, First up, we have uh, an old-time radio show, and this one is from an old show called Quiet, Please. Now, this one I've just kind of stumbled upon. I actually didn't really know of its existence. I probably heard some of their uh, stuff. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure I have, but I, I, for some reason I didn't connect the dots. But, but I, I found uh, an archive full of all their episodes. They only did, I think, 60 to 70 somewhere. Uh, maybe 80, and uh, then they called it quits for whatever reason. And uh, But they, they have some really awesome stuff. And uh, this time around, we have... Uh, uh, what's the name of the uh, episode? It's called The Thing on the Forble Board. And uh, apparently this is their scariest. Um, and one of the scariest I've, I've read... Uh, old-time radio dramas ever produced, so I guess we're going to figure that out together. <laughs> and uh, after that, we have another reading by Morgan Scorpion, and this time she reads Robert W. Chambers' The Yellow Sign. So uh, stick around, this is going to be an awesome episode, maybe a little long, but not too long. And uh, so it's time to grab that uh, that bag of candies. <laughs> and uh, a hot beverage and uh, get yourself comfortable dig in and enjoy with unmatched success since 2012 crystal lake publishing has quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of horror and thriller books with a mystery and suspense edge. With stories, interviews, and essays by the likes of Wes Craven, Neil Gaiman, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, Kevin Lucia, Jasper Bark, Mercedes M. Yardley, Mark Allen Gunnels, and Clive Barker, You'll want to dive right in. Crystal Lake Publishing www.crystallakepub.com Quiet, please. Thank you. 
Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Purple Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago. A little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home. Had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! Yeah, I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board's no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because... Yeah, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level. Yeah, sure they do. From the time I was a roughneck, we got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That friend is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there, besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe, ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells... Trilobites, mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe... Then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Well, you see, a, a core drill is hollow. And as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's going into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for myself, but I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunewald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. Hi, Billy, come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Ah. Where's everybody? They all went to town. I'm the whole crew. Yeah, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd been here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. Oh, oh I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, no, oh, seven pork chops. And bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. 
Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a banquet. Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh-huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. Yeah. I don't see anybody. We'll keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. Like so. When did you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of holes, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. How? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. Mm, Ain't seen none yet. From the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? <laughs> yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, much obliged. Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yeah, I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> Never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait till you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish I was screech out of the What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, why did... Listen. What's eating you? You, you know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there in that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. Getting against those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I... Ah, what's just so jittery about Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Doggone it, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh. That's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight. I turned around and went outside. I found the car. And I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up, and when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the forbal board, I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this uh, forbal board. Well, you've seen oil derricks or pictures of them. Do you know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forbal board. 
Well, you see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a thribble, four is a fourble. When you pull a pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick of the traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. Then when a fourble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the fourble board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again until you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the fourble board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Hang on, I ain't done. I poked at the core of rock that looked like a uh, kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up, and it was cold, and it was heavy, and... It was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could, he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done? When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of piece and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from down in the fobel board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. 
Things I could hear, but I couldn't see. Up on the forbal board. Millie Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash alongside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck. With a broken neck and his left hand. Well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car, and I got in. I stepped on the starter, and I couldn't get it to go, and then I remembered after I pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pike, Ted. Well, what was he doing up on the formal board? Did you threaten him and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the formal board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides... How would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, it's mighty mysterious. So it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there, and I want to start drilling again, and I'm shorthanded. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again, and, oh, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, okay. Let's get rolling. They got steam up, Happy? I'm all set. All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. Hey, you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going. So, okay, I go up on the forbal board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first forbal of drill pipe. Gave a big jerk, and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the forbal board. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself. Well, that was enough. Two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more, and... As far as I know, the abandoned... Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. 
It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. You know what? There was something up there on the forble board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we left it. I, I looked into the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. I heard it again, and it came from above my head, and, and I, I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the forble board. No, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. There was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipe shivered. And I thought, what can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like, like jack straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the forble board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body... I'll not tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well. Come to an alien world and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone. Living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes. 
and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible, that if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face, I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. Ah, but it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. The title of tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunewald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend Albert April. Now for the word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional. At least I, for one, hope so. Next week, the story is called Presto Change I'm sure. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. This program was heard in Canada through the facilities of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Hi. Welcome to the Patreon campaign for Crystal Lake Publishing. I'm Jasper Bark. Let me explain to you why I was thrilled to be an advocate. I've been working with Crystal Lake Publishing since the publication of their first official release, the anthology for the Night is dark. Over the last three years, I've watched them grow into one of the world's leading indie publishers of dark fiction. But times are hard for indie publishers, and that's why they need your support. Not only to pay the huge number of people who work tirelessly behind the scenes to make certain that each book is of the highest professional standard, but also to pay all anthology contributors a top professional rate to include artwork in every single one of their books and 
to pay a quarterly bonus on royalties to all their authors. In return, they are offering some truly amazing perks, so please do take a moment to go and check them out. The perks are offered over two tiers, so there is something to suit everyone's budget. And, because this is Patreon, you can put a cap on the amount of money you spend each month so you will never go above budget. But, the main reason to support Crystal Lake Publishing is because they build communities. Communities of readers and writers, of artists and filmmakers, and genre enthusiasts of every stripe. And that's why I am so proud to be an associate, why I was thrilled to be an advocate for this campaign, and why, most importantly, I hope that you will join me. Thank you so much for listening. Right. Well, let's talk about good deal. Let's talk about that because you were one of the first people to have the idea that a clown could be a scary figure. Mm -hmm. You actually, uh, in, in the in in it, which became right. a movie, you wrote about a, a you created a homicidal clown. It's very effective. Did you find clowns scary when you were a kid? Well, you know, as a kid going to the circus, there would be like twelve full-grown people that would all pile out of a little tiny car. Their faces were dead white. Their mouths were red as though they were full of blood. They're all screaming. Their eyes are huge. What's not to like? You know? <laughs> so why yeah. were your clowns right. screaming? I well, know. I mean, yeah, they, I know what you mean. They, they come out, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I started to actually look at kids when I grew up a little bit, and I said, you know. Kids are all terrified of him, and the parents are all like, aren't the clowns funny, Johnny? And Johnny's like, no, get me the hell out of here. These people are all crazy because right. they are monstrous looking, and children are really afraid of them. They do have that sort of monstrous thing going for them. Did you ever have a personal interaction with a clown that, that scared you? Yeah, well, not exactly scared me, but I was on a, <laughs> I was on a book tour, my first big book tour, and uh, I was on my way home. You do nine, ten, eleven cities in four days. It's surreal anyway by the time you get done. Cleveland was the last city. And uh, the plane started to pull away from the gate. We were going to go from Cleveland to Burlington to Portland, where I was going to get off and drive home. The plane pulls away from the gate, and then it pulls back in. I'm sitting in first class. And uh, the door opens again, and Ronald McDonald gets on the airplane. <laughs> He's fully dressed. Full, fully clothed fully Ronald McDonald, yeah. You know, and it sits down next to me because I attract weirdness. You know, I'm like a weirdness magnet. And, and I was so weirded out by that point after all these, you know, rubber chicken dinners and everything else that I wasn't even surprised. Here he is, orange hair, orange shoes, the whole nine yards. He sits down next to me. This is years ago. Plane takes off. No smoking light goes off. He pulls out a pack of Kent's. Lights up. <laughs> Ronald lights up a cigarette, yeah. I can't, and he orders a gin and tonic from the stewardess. He's sitting there drinking a gin and tonic, smoking a can't, and I, I say the only thing I can think of, where did you come from? He says, McDonaldland. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, McDonaldland, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. So I say, is this... No, really, where'd you come from? And he had come from McDonaldland, which right. is a real place in Chicago. And he was going to open a McDonald's in Burlington, Vermont. But you talk about surreal. Sure. 
40,000 feet with Ronald McDonald, and you think, what if this plane crashes? <laughs> I'm going to die next to a cloud. <laughs> a drunken one, too, yeah. <laughs> you don't know what it's like. <laughs> the Yellow Sign by Robert W. Chambers Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do when this blue starlight dies and all is through. 1. There are so many things which are impossible to explain. Why should certain chords in music make me think of the brown and golden tints of autumn foliage? Why should the mass of Saint Cecile bend my thoughts wandering among caverns whose walls blaze with ragged masses of virgin silver? What was it in the roar and turmoil of Broadway at six o'clock that flashed before my eyes the picture of a still Breton forest where sunlight filtered through spring foliage and Sylvia bent, half curiously, half tenderly, over a small green lizard, murmuring, To think that this also is a little ward of God. When I first saw the watchman his back was toward me, I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. I paid no more attention to him than I had to any other man who lounged through Washington Square that morning, and when I shut my window and turned back into my studio, I had forgotten about him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church and I noticed him again with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then, with my mind filled with vague impressions of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving groups of nursemaids and holiday-makers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless glance included the man below in the churchyard. His face was toward me now, and with a perfect involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly I thought of a coffin worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me I did not know, but the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette-knife and scraped the colour out again. The flesh-tones were sallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such a sickly colour into a study which before that had glowed with healthy tones. I looked at Tessie. She had not changed, and the clear flush of health dyed her neck and cheeks as I frowned. "'Is it something I've done?' she said. "'No. I've made a mess of this arm, and for the life of me I can't see how I came to paint such mud as that into the canvas.' I replied. "'Don't I pose well?' she insisted. "'Of course, perfectly. "'Then it's not my fault?' "'No, it's my own.' 
"'I'm very sorry,' she said. I told her she could rest while I applied rag and turpentine to the plague spot on my canvas, and she went off to smoke a cigarette and look over the illustrations in the Courrier Francais. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or a defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrene seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. Alarmed, I strove to arrest it, but now the colour on the breast changed, and the whole figure seemed to absorb the infection as a sponge soaks up water. Vigorously, I plied palette-knife, turpentine, and scraper, thinking all the time what a séance I should hold with Duval, who had sold me the canvas. But soon I noticed that it was not the canvas which was defective, nor yet the colours of Edward. It must be the turpentine, I thought angrily, or else my eyes have become so blurred and confused by the afternoon light that I can't see straight. I called Tessie, the model. She came and leaned over my chair, blowing rings of smoke into the air. What have you been doing to it? she exclaimed. Nothing, I growled. It must be this turpentine. What a horrible colour it is now, she continued. "'Do you think my flesh resembles green cheese?' "'No, I don't,' I said angrily. "'Did you ever know me to paint like that before?' "'No, indeed.' "'Well, then.' "'It must be the turpentine, or something,' she admitted. "'She slipped on a Japanese robe and walked to the window. "'I scraped and rubbed until I was tired, "'and finally picked up my brushes "'and hurled them through the canvas with a forcible expression.' the tone alone of which reached Tessie's ears. Nevertheless, she promptly began. That's it. Swear and act silly and ruin your brushes. You have been three weeks on that study, and now look. What's the good of ripping the canvas? What creatures artists are? I felt about as much ashamed as I usually did after such an outbreak, and I turned the ruined canvas to the wall. Tessie helped me clean my brushes, and then danced away to dress. From the screen she regaled me with bits of advice concerning whole or partial loss of temper, until, thinking perhaps I had been tormented sufficiently, she came out to implore me to button her waist where she could not reach it on the shoulder. "'Everything went wrong from the time you came back from the window and talked about that horrid-looking man you saw in the churchyard,' she announced. "'Yes, he probably bewitched the picture,' I said, yawning. I looked at my watch. "'It's after six, I know,' said Tessie, adjusting her hat before the mirror. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I didn't mean to keep you so long.' I leaned out of the window, but recoiled with disgust, for the young man with the pasty face stood below in the churchyard. Tessie saw my gesture of disapproval and leaned from the window. "'Is that the man you don't like?' she whispered. I nodded. "'I can't see his face, but he does look fat and soft. Some way or other,' she continued, turning to look at me, "'he reminds me of a dream, an awful dream I once had, or,' she mused, looking down at her shapely shoes, 
Was it a dream after all? How should I know? I smiled. Tessie smiled in reply. You were in it, she said. So perhaps you might know something about it. Tessie, Tessie, I protested. Don't you dare flatter by saying that you dream about me. But I did, she insisted. Shall I tell you about it? Go ahead, I replied, lighting a cigarette. Tessie leaned back on the open window sill and began very seriously. One night, last winter, I was lying in bed, thinking about nothing at all in particular. I had been posing for you, and I was tired out, yet it seemed impossible for me to sleep. I heard the bells in the city ring ten, eleven, and midnight. I must have fallen asleep about midnight, because I don't remember hearing the bells after that. It seemed to me that I had scarcely closed my eyes when I dreamed that something impelled me to go to the window. I rose, and raising the sash, leaned out. Twenty-fifth Street was deserted as far as I could see. I began to be afraid. Everything outside seemed so, so black and uncomfortable. Then the sound of wheels in the distance came to my ears, and it seemed to me as though that was what I must wait for. Very slowly the wheels approached, and finally I could make out a vehicle moving along the street. It came nearer and nearer, and when it passed beneath my window I saw it was a hearse. Then, as I trembled with fear, the driver turned and looked straight at me. When I awoke I was standing by the open window shivering with cold, but the black-plumed hearse and the driver were gone. I dreamed this dream again in March last, and again awoke beside the open window. Last night the dream came again. You remember how it was raining. When I awoke, standing at the open window, my nightdress was soaked. But where did I come into the dream? I asked. You? You were in the coffin. But you were not dead. In the coffin? Yes. How did you know? Could you see me? No, I only knew you were there. Had you been eating Welsh rabbits or lobster salad? I began, laughing. But the girl interrupted me with a frightened cry. "'Hello, what's up?' I said, as she shrank into the embrasure by the window. "'The the man below in the churchyard. He drove the hearse.' "'Nonsense,' I said, but Tessie's eyes were wide with terror. I went to the window and looked out. The man was gone. "'Come, Tessie,' I urged. "'Don't be foolish. You have posed too long. You are nervous.' "'Do you think I could forget that face?' she murmured. Three times I saw the hearse pass below my window, "'and every time the driver turned and looked up at me. "'Oh, his face was so white and, and soft. "'He looked dead. "'It looked as if he had been dead a long time.' "'I induced the girl to sit down and swallow a glass of marsala. "'Then I sat down beside her and tried to give her some advice. "'Look here, Tessie,' I said. You go to the country for a week or two, and you'll have no more dreams about hearses. You pose all day, and when night comes your nerves are upset. You can't keep this up. Then again, instead of going to bed when your day's work is done, you run off to picnics at Sulzer's Park, or go to El Dorado or Coney Island, and when you come down here next morning, you're fagged out. There was no real hearse. There was a soft-shell crab dream. 
she smiled faintly. What about the man in the churchyard? Oh, he's only an ordinary, unhealthy, everyday creature. As true as my name is Tessie Reardon, I swear to you, Mr. Scott, that the face of the man below in the churchyard is the face of the man who drove the hearse. What of it, I said. It's an honest trade. Then you think I did see the hearse? Oh, I said diplomatically. If you really did, it might not be unlikely that the man below drove it. There is nothing in that. Tessie rose, unrolled her scented handkerchief, and taking a bit of gum from a knot in the hem, placed it in her mouth. Then, drawing on her gloves, she offered me her hand with a frank, Good night, Mr. Scott, and walked out. 2. The next morning, Thomas the bellboy brought me the herald and a bit of news. The church next door had been sold. I thanked heaven for it, not that being a Catholic I had any repugnance for the congregation next door, but because my nerves were shattered by a blatant exhorter, whose every word echoed through the aisle of the church as if it had been my own rooms, and who insisted on his R's with a nasal persistence which revolted my every instinct. Then, too, there was a fiend in human shape, an organist who reeled off some of the grand old hymns with an interpretation of his own, and I longed for the blood of a creature who could play the doxology with an amendment of minor chords which one hears only in a quartet of very young undergraduates. I believe the minister was a good man, but when he bellowed, and the Lord said unto Moses, The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. My wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. I wondered how many centuries of purgatory it would take to atone for such a sin. Who bought the property? I asked Thomas. Nobody that I know, sir. They do say the general owns this here Hamilton Flats was looking at it. He might be building more studios. I walked to the window. The young man with the unhealthy face stood by the churchyard gate, and at the mere sight of him the same overwhelming repugnance took possession of me. By the way, Thomas, I said, who is that fellow down there? Thomas sniffed. That there worm, sir? He's night watchman of the church, sir. He makes me tired of sitting out all night on them steps and looking at you insulting-like. I'd have punched his head, sir. Beg pardon, sir. Go on, Thomas. One night, a-coming home with Harry, the other English boy, I sees him a-sitting there on them steps. We had Molly and Jen with us, sir, the two girls on the tray service, and he looks so insulting at us that I up and says, What you looking at, you fat slug? Beg pardon, sir. But that's how I says, sir. Then he don't say nothing, and I says, Come out, and I'll punch that puddin' head. Then I opens the gate and goes in, but he don't say nothing, only looks insulting like Then I hits him one, but, ugh. His head was that cold and mushy, it'd sicken you to touch him. What did he do then? I asked curiously. Him? Nothing. And you, Thomas? The young fellow flushed with embarrassment and smiled uneasily. 
Mr. Scott, sir, I ain't no coward, and I can't make it out at all why I run. I was in the fifth Lancers, sir, bugler at Tel El Kabir, and was shot by the wells. You don't mean to say you ran away? Yes, sir, I run. Why? That's just what I want to know, sir. I grabbed Molly and run, and the rest was as frightened as I. But what were they frightened at? Thomas refused to answer for a while, but now my curiosity was aroused about the repulsive young man below, and I pressed him. Three years' sojourn in America had not only modified Co Thomas's Cockney dialect, but had given him the American's fear of ridicule. "'You won't believe me, Mr. Scott, sir?' "'Yes, I will.' "'You will laugh at me, sir?' "'Nonsense.' He hesitated. Well, sir, it's God's truth that when I hit him he grabbed me wrist, sir, and when I twisted his soft, mushy fist, one of his fingers come off in me hand. The utter loathing and horror of Thomas's face must have been reflected in my own, for he added, It's awful, and now when I see him I just go away. He makes me ill. When Thomas had gone I went to the window. The man stood beside the church railing with both hands on the gate, but I hastily retreated to my easel again, sickened and horrified, for I saw that the middle finger of his right hand was missing. At nine o'clock Tessie appeared and vanished behind the screen with a merry, "'Good morning, Mr. Scott!' When she had reappeared and taken her pose upon the model stand, I started a new canvas, much to her delight. She remained silent as long as I was on the drawing, but as soon as the scrape of charcoal ceased and I took up my fixative, she began to chatter. Oh, I had such a lovely time last night. We went to Tony Pastor's. Who are we? I demanded. Oh, Maggie, you know, Mr. White's model, and Pinky McCormick. We call her Pinky because she's got that beautiful red hair you artists like so much. And Lizzie Burke. I sent a shower of spray from the fixative over the canvas and said, Well, go on. We saw Kelly and Baby Barnes the skirt dancer and, and all the rest. I made a mash. Then you have gone back on me, Tessie. She laughed and shook her head. He's Lizzie Burke's brother, Ed. He's a perfect gentleman. I felt constrained to give her some parental advice concerning mashing, which she took with a bright smile. "'Oh, I can take care of a strange mash,' she said, examining her chewing gum. "'But Ed is different. Lizzie is my best friend.' Then she related how Ed had come back from the stocking mill in Lowell, Massachusetts, to find her and Lizzie grown up, and what an accomplished young man he was, and how he thought nothing of squandering half a dollar for ice cream and oysters to celebrate his entry as a clerk into the woolen department of Macy's. Before she finished I began to paint, and she resumed the pose, smiling and chattering like a sparrow. By noon I had the study fairly well rubbed in, and Tessie came to look at it. "'That's better,' she said. I thought so too, and ate my lunch with a satisfied feeling that all was going well. Tessie spread her lunch on a drawing-table opposite me, 
and we drank our claret from the same bottle and lighted our cigarettes from the same match. I was very much attached to Tessie. I had watched her shoot up into a slender but exquisitely formed woman from a frail, awkward child. She had posed for me during the last three years, and among all my models she was a favourite. It would have troubled me very much indeed had she become tough or fly, as the phrase goes, but I never noticed any deterioration of her manner, and felt at heart that she was all right. She and I never discussed morals at all, and I had no intention of doing so, partly because I had none myself, and partly because I knew she would do what she liked in spite of me. Still I did hope she would steer clear of complications, because I wished her well, and then also I had a selfish desire to retain the best model I had. I knew that mashing, as she termed it, had no significance with girls like Tessie, and that such things in America did not resemble in the least the same things in Paris. Yet, having lived with my eyes open, I knew that somebody would take Tessie away some day, in one manner or another, and though I professed to myself that marriage was nonsense, I sincerely hoped that in this case there would be a priest at the end of the vista. I am a Catholic. When I listen to high mass, when I sign myself, I feel that everything, including myself, is more cheerful, and when I confess, it does me good. A man who lives as much alone as I do must confess to somebody. Then again, Sylvia was a Catholic, and it was reason enough for me. But I was speaking of Tessie, which is very different. Tessie also was Catholic, and much more devout than I, so, taking it all in all, I had little fear for my pretty model until she should fall in love. But then I knew that fate alone would decide her future for her, and I prayed inwardly that fate would keep her away from men like me, and throw into her path nothing but Ed Burke's and Jimmy McCormack's. Bless her sweet face. Tessie sat blowing rings of smoke up to the ceiling, and tinkling the ice in her tumbler. "'Do you know that I also had a dream last night?' I observed. "'Not about that man,' she laughed. "'Exactly. A dream similar to yours, only much worse.' "'It was foolish and thoughtless of me to say this, but you know how little tact the average painter has. "'I must have fallen asleep about ten o'clock,' I continued and after a while I dreamt that I awoke. So plainly did I hear the midnight bells, the wind in the tree branches and the whistle of steamers from the bay, that even now I can scarcely believe I was not awake. I seemed to be lying in a box which had a glass cover. Dimly I saw the street lamps as I passed. For I must tell you, Tessie, the box in which I reclined appeared to lie in a cushioned wagon which jolted me over a stony pavement. After a while I became impatient and tried to move, but the box was too narrow. My hands were crossed on my breast, so I could not raise them to help myself. I listened and then tried to call. My voice was gone. I could hear the trample of the horses attached to the wagon, and even the breathing of the driver. Then another sound broke upon my ears, like the raising of a window-sash. 
I managed to turn my head a little, and found I could look, not only through the glass cover of my box, but also through the glass panes in the side of the covered vehicle. I saw houses, empty and silent, with neither light nor life about any of them, excepting one. In that house a window was open on the first floor, and a figure all in white stood looking down into the street. It was you. Tessie had turned her face away from me and leaned on the table with her elbow. I could see your face, I resumed, and it seemed to me to be very sorrowful. Then we passed on and turned into a narrow back lane. Presently the horses stopped. I waited and waited, closing my eyes with fear and impatience, but all was silent as the grave. After what seemed to me hours, I began to feel uncomfortable. A sense that somebody was close to me made me unclose my eyes. Then I saw the white face of the hearse driver looking at me through the coffin lid. A sob from Tessie interrupted me. She was trembling like a leaf. I saw I had made an ass of myself and attempted to repair the damage. "'Why, Tess,' I said, "'I only told you this to show you what influence your story might have on another person's dreams.' "'You don't suppose I really lay in a coffin, do you? "'What are you trembling for? "'Don't you see that your dream and my unreasonable dislike "'for that inoffensive watchman of the church "'simply set my brain working as soon as I fell asleep?' "'She laid her head between her arms and sobbed as if her heart would break. "'What a precious triple donkey I had made of myself! "'But I was about to break my record. "'I went over and put my arm about her. "'Tessie, dear, forgive me,' I said. "'I had no business to frighten you with such nonsense. "'You are too sensible a girl, too good a Catholic to believe in dreams.' "'Her hand tightened on mine and her head fell back upon my shoulder. "'But she still trembled, and I petted her and comforted her. "'Come, Tess, open your eyes and smile.' "'Her eyes opened with a slow, languid movement and met mine. "'but their expression was so queer "'that I hastened to reassure her again. "'It's all humbug, Tessie. "'You surely are not afraid "'that any harm will come to you because of that?' "'No,' she said, "'but her scarlet lips quivered. "'Then what's the matter? "'Are you afraid?' "'Yes. "'Not for myself.' "'For me, then?' I demanded gaily. "'For you.' she murmured in a voice almost inaudible. I, I care for you. At first I started to laugh, but when I understood her a shock passed through me, and I sat like one turned to stone. This was the crowning bitter idiocy I had committed. During the moment which elapsed between her reply and my answer, I thought of a thousand responses to that innocent confession. I could pass it by with a laugh, I could misunderstand her and assure her as to my health. I could simply point out that it was impossible she could love me. But my reply was quicker than my thoughts, and I might think and think now when it was too late, for I had kissed her on the mouth. That evening I took my usual walk in Washington Park, pondering over the occurrences of the day. I was thoroughly committed. There was no back out now, and I stared the future straight in the face. I was not good, not even scrupulous, 
but I had no idea of deceiving either myself or Tessie. The one passion of my life lay buried in the sunlit forests of Brittany. Was it buried for ever? Hope cried no. For three years I had been listening to the voice of hope, and for three years I had waited for a footstep on my threshold. Had Sylvia forgotten? No, cried Hope. I said that I was no good. That is true, but still I was not exactly a comic opera villain. I had led an easy-going, reckless life, taking what invited me of pleasure, deploring and sometimes bitterly regretting consequences. In one thing alone, except my painting, was I serious and that was something which lay hidden, if not lost, in the Breton forests. It was too late for me to regret what had occurred during the day. Whatever it had been, pity, a sudden tenderness for sorrow, or the more brutal instinct of gratified vanity, it was all the same now, and unless I wished to bruise an innocent heart, my path lay marked before me. The fire and strength, the depth of passion of a love which I had never even suspected, with all my imagined experience in the world, left me no alternative but to respond, or send her away. Whether because I am so cowardly about giving pain to others, or whether it was that I have a little of the gloomy Puritan in me, I do not know, but I shrank from disclaiming responsibility for that thoughtless kiss and in fact had no time to do so before the gates of her heart opened and the flood poured forth others who habitually do their duty and find a sullen satisfaction in making themselves and everybody else unhappy might have withstood it i did not i dared not after the storm had abated i did tell her that she might better have loved ed burke and worn a plain gold ring but she would not hear of it and I thought perhaps as long as she had decided to love somebody she could not marry, it had better be me. I at least could treat her with an intelligent affection, and whenever she became tired of her infatuation she could go none the worse for it. For I was decided on that point, although I knew how hard it would be. I remembered the usual termination of platonic liaisons and thought how disgusted I had been whenever I heard of one. I knew I was undertaking a great deal for so unscrupulous a man as I was, and I dreamed the future, but never for one moment did I doubt that she was safe with me. Had it been anybody but Tessie, I should not have bothered my head about scruples, for it did not occur to me to sacrifice Tessie as I would have sacrificed a woman of the world. I looked the future squarely in the face and saw the several probable endings to the affair. She would either tire of the whole thing, or become so unhappy that I should have either to marry her or go away. If I married her, we would be unhappy, I with a wife unsuited to me, and she with a husband unsuitable for any woman, for my past life could scarcely entitle me to marry. If I went away, she might either fall ill, recover and marry some Eddie Burke, or she might recklessly or deliberately go and do something foolish. On the other hand, if she tired of me, then her whole life would be before her with beautiful vistas of Eddie Burke's and marriage rings and twins and Harlem flats and heaven knows what. 
as I strolled along through the trees by the Washington Arch, I decided that she should find a substantial friend in me anyway, and the future could take care of itself. Then I went into the house and put on my evening dress, for the little faintly perfumed note on my dresser said, Have a cab at the stage door at eleven, and the note was signed, Edith Carmichael, Metropolitan Theatre. I took supper that night, or rather we took supper, Miss Carmichael and I, at Solari's, and the dawn was just beginning to gild the cross on the memorial church as I entered Washington Square after leaving Edith at the Brunswick. There was not a soul in the park as I passed along the trees and took the walk which leads from the Garibaldi statue to the Hamilton apartment house. But as I passed the churchyard, I saw a figure sitting on the stone steps. In spite of myself, a chill crept over me at the sight of the white, puffy face, and I hastened to pass. Then he said something which might have been addressed to me, or might merely have been a mutter to himself. But a sudden furious anger flamed up within me that such a creature should address me. For an instant I felt like wheeling about and smashing my stick over his head, but I walked on, and entering the Hamilton went to my apartment. For some time I tossed about the bed trying to get the sound of his voice out of my ears, but could not. It filled my head, that muttering sound like thick oily smoke from a fat rendering vat, or an odour of noisome decay. As I lay and tossed about, the voice in my ears seemed more distinct, and I began to understand the words he had muttered. They came to me slowly as if I had forgotten them, and at last I could make some sense out of the sounds. It was this. Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? I was furious. What did he mean by that? Then with a curse upon him and his I rolled over and went to sleep, but when I awoke later I looked pale and haggard, for I had dreamed the dream of the night before, and it troubled me more than I cared to think. I dressed and went down into my studio. Tessie sat by the window, but as I came in she rose and put both arms around my neck for an innocent kiss. She looked so sweet and dainty that I kissed her again, and then sat down before the easel. Hello. Where's the study I began yesterday? I asked. Tessie looked conscious, but did not answer. I began to hunt among the piles of canvases, saying, Hurry up, Tess, and get ready. We must take advantage of the morning light. When at last I gave up the search among the other canvases and turned to look around the room for the missing study, I noticed Tessie standing by the screen with her clothes still on. What's the matter? I asked. Don't you feel well? Yes. Then hurry. Do you want me to pose as... as I have always posed? Then I understood. Here was a new complication. I had lost, of course, the best nude model I had ever seen. I looked at Tessie. Her face was scarlet. Alas, alas! We had eaten of the tree of knowledge, 
Egypt and Eden and native innocence were dreams of the past. I mean, for her. I suppose she noticed the disappointment on my face, for she said, I will pose if you wish. The study is behind the screen, here where I put it. No, I said, we will begin something new and I went into my wardrobe and picked out a Moorish costume which fairly blazed with tinsel. It was a genuine costume, and Tessie returned to the screen with it, enchanted. When she came forth again I was astonished. Her long black hair was bound above her forehead with a circlet of turquoises, and the ends curled about her glittering girdle. Her feet were encased in the embroidered pointed slippers, and the skirt of her costume, curiously wrought with arabesques in silver, fell to her ankles. The deep metallic blue vest embroidered with silver, and the short mooresque jacket, spangled and sewn with turquoises, became her wonderfully. She came up to me and held up her face, smiling. I slipped my hand into my pocket, and, drawing out a gold chain with a cross attached, dropped it over her head. "'It's yours, Tessie.' "'Mine?' she faltered. "'Yours. Now go and pose.' Then, with a radiant smile, she ran behind the screen and presently reappeared with a little box on which was written my name. "'I had intended to give it to you when I went home tonight,' she said. "'But I can't wait now.' I opened the box. On the pink cotton inside lay a clasp of black onyx, on which was inlaid a curious symbol or letter in gold. It was neither Arabic nor Chinese, nor, as I found afterwards, did it belong to any human script. "'It's all I had to give you for a keepsake,' she said timidly. I was annoyed, but I told her how much I should prize it, and promised to wear it always. She fastened it on my coat beneath the lapel. "'How foolish, Tess, to go and buy me such a beautiful thing as this,' I said. "'I did not buy it,' she laughed. "'Where did you get it?' Then she told me how she had found it one day while coming up from the aquarium in the battery, how she had advertised it and watched the papers, but at last gave up all hopes of finding the owner. "'That was last winter,' she said. "'The very day I had the first horrid dream about the hearse.' I remembered my dream of the previous night, but said nothing, and presently my charcoal was flying over a new canvas, and Tessie stood motionless on the model stand. 3. The day following was a disastrous one for me. While moving a framed canvas from one easel to another, my foot slipped on the polished floor, and I fell heavily on both wrists. They were so badly sprained that it was useless to attempt to hold a brush, and I was obliged to wander about the studio, glaring at unfinished drawings and sketches, until despair seized me, and I sat down to smoke and twiddle my thumbs with rage. The rain blew against the windows and rattled on the roof of the church, driving me into a nervous fit with its interminable patter. Tessie sat sewing by the window, and every now and then raised her head and looked at me with such innocent compassion that I began to feel ashamed of my irritation and looked about for something to occupy me. I had read all the papers and all the books in the library, but for the sake of something to do I went to the bookcases and shoved them open with my elbow. 
I knew every volume by its colour and examined them all, passing slowly around the library and whistling to keep up my spirits. I was turning to go into the dining-room when my eye fell upon a book bound in serpent skin, standing in a corner at the top shelf of the last bookcase. I did not remember it, and from the floor could not decipher the pale lettering on the back, so I went to the smoking-room and called Tessie. She came in from the studio and climbed up to reach the book. "'What is it?' I asked. "'The King in Yellow.' I was dumbfounded. Who had placed it there? How came it in my rooms? I had long ago decided that I should never open that book, and nothing on earth could have persuaded me to buy it. Fearful lest curiosity might tempt me to open it, I had never even looked at it in bookstores. If I ever had had any curiosity to read it, the awful tragedy of young Castaigne, whom I knew, prevented me from exploring its wicked pages. I had always refused to listen to any description of it, and indeed nobody ever ventured to discuss the second part aloud, so I had absolutely no knowledge of what those leaves might reveal. I stared at the poisonous, mottled binding as I would at a snake. "'Don't touch it, Tessie.' I said, come down. Of course my admonition was enough to arouse her curiosity, and before I could prevent it she took the book and laughing danced off into the studio with it. I called to her, but she slipped away with a tormenting smile at my helpless hands, and I followed her with some impatience. Tessie, I cried, entering the library, listen, I'm serious. Put that book away. I do not wish you to open it. The library was empty. I went into both drawing-rooms, then into the bedrooms, laundry, kitchen, and finally returned to the library and began a systematic search. She had hidden herself so well that it was half an hour later when I discovered her crouching white and silent by the latticed window in the storeroom above. At the first glance I saw she had been punished for her foolishness. The king in yellow lay at her feet but the book was open at the second part. I looked at Tessie and saw it was too late. She had opened the king in yellow. Then I took her by the hand and led her into the studio. She seemed dazed, and when I told her to lie down on the sofa she obeyed me without a word. After a while she closed her eyes and her breathing became regular and deep, but I could not determine whether or not she slept. For a long while I sat silently beside her, but she neither stirred nor spoke, and at last I rose, and entering the unused storeroom, took the book in my least injured hand. It seemed heavy as lead, but I carried it into the studio again, and sitting down on the rug beside the sofa, opened it and read it through from beginning to end. When, faint with excess of my emotions, I dropped the volume and leaned wearily back against the sofa. Tessie opened her eyes and looked at me. We had been speaking for some time in a dull, monotonous strain before I realised that we were discussing the king in yellow. Oh, the sin of writing such words! Words which are clear as crystal, limpid and musical as bubbling springs, words which sparkle and glow like the poisoned diamonds of the Medicis. Oh, the wickedness, the hopeless damnation of a soul who could fascinate and paralyze human creatures with such words, 
words understood by the ignorant and wise alike, words which are more precious than jewels, more soothing than music, more awful than death. We talked on, unmindful of the gathering shadows, and she was begging me to throw away the clasp of black onyx, quaintly inlaid with what we now knew to be the yellow sign. I never shall know why I refused, though even at this hour, here in my bedroom, as I write this confession, I should be glad to know what it was that prevented me from tearing the yellow sign from my breast and casting it into the fire. I am sure I wished to do so, and yet Tessie pleaded with me in vain. Night fell and the hours dragged on, but still we murmured to each other of the king and the pallid mask, and midnight sounded from the misty spires of the fog-wrapped city. We spoke of Hastur and of Casilda, while outside the fog rolled against the black window-panes as the cloud-waves roll and break on the shores of Harley. The house was very silent now, and not a sound came up from the misty streets. Tessie lay among the cushions, her face a grey blot in the gloom, but her hands were clasped in mine, and I knew that she knew, and read my thoughts as I read hers, for we had understood the mystery of the Hyades, and the phantom of truth was laid. Then, as we answered each other, swiftly, silently, thought on thought, the shadows stirred in the gloom about us, and far in the distant streets we heard a sound. Nearer and nearer it came, the dull crunching of wheels. Nearer and yet nearer, and now, outside before the door, it ceased, and I dragged myself to the window and saw a black plumed hearse. The gate below opened and shut, and I crept shaking to my door and bolted it. But I knew no bolts, no locks could keep that creature out who was coming for the yellow sign, and now I heard him moving very softly along the hall. Now he was at the door, and the bolts rotted at his touch. Now he had entered. With eyes starting from my head I peered into the darkness, but when he came into the room I did not see him. It was only when I felt him envelop me in his cold, soft grasp that I cried out and struggled with deadly fury. But my hands were useless, and he tore the onyx clasp from my coat and struck me full in the face. Then, as I fell, I heard Tessie's soft cry and her spirit fled. And even while falling I longed to follow her, for I knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle and there was only God to cry to now. I could tell more, but I cannot see what help it will be to the world. As for me, I am past human help or hope. As I lie here, writing, careless even whether or not I die before I finish, I can see the doctor gathering up his powders and files with a vague gesture to the good priest beside me which I understand. They will be very curious to know the tragedy, they of the outside world who write books and print millions of newspapers. But I shall write no more, and the Father Confessor will seal my last words with the seal of sanctity when his holy office is done. 
They of the outside world may send their creatures into wrecked homes and death-smitten firesides, and their newspapers will batten on blood and tears. But with me their spies must halt before the confessional. They know that Tessie is dead, and that I am dying. They know how the people in the house, aroused by an infernal scream, rushed into my room and found one living and two dead. But they do not know what I shall tell them now. They do not know that the doctor said, as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor, the livid corpse of the watchman from the church. I have no theory, no explanation. That man must have been dead for months. I think I am dying. I wish the priest would.
dazzle in the Nile like figures of fine glass. The slightest touch and we may shatter. Both of us suffer from a morbid acuteness of the senses. Mine is the worse for having existed the longer, but both of us are afflicted with it. Any sort of food more exotic than the most pallid mash is unendurable to my taste buds. Any sort of garment other than the softest is agony to my flesh. My eyes are tormented by all but the faintest illumination. Odors assail me constantly. And as I've said, sounds of any degree whatsoever inspire me with terror. That's why your servant asked me to remove my boots. Yes. And even so, I could hear you coming. Every footstep, every rustle of your clothes. I could hear your horse approaching. Hear the clatter of its hooves across the courtyard, your knock. The grating of the door bolt was like a sword stroke to my ears. I can hear the scratch of rat claws within the stone wall. Mr. Winthrop, three quarters of my family have fallen into madness. And in their madness have acquired a, a superhuman strength. So that it took the power of many to subdue. 